the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get into today's topic, I just want to point out we have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Send us a buck, support us any way you can so we can keep bringing you all of this juicy content. Cooper, how are you today, buddy? Feeling good, feeling good. I'm excited about this this conversation. This should be a fun one, I think. You know, after we did the swamp thing, and you know, we we started to to tickle the taint of of Felix Guattari. You know, Chaosmosis, his last work, but also um, Three Ecologies, which right. which to many of my friends, I I suggest as the first work by Guattari. You know, alone, his solo yeah. work. And I do have some reservations about that. I'll save those for later. But I do still think that in general, because of the topicality of the text Mm -hmm. and because it still has a lot of resonance with issues we face today, I think that that's that's kind of why we decided, hey, why why don't we talk a little bit more about three ecologies? I mean, you and I have done what, 15, 16 hours plus on Guattari solo work already uh, on the Machinic Unconscious. I know you have the, um, by the way, listeners, you can, there's a playlist on our SoundCloud that you can, you can find. It's under Super Guattario Brothers 3. It's a cute little, it's an adorable little, little image there. But yeah, we had, what, at least six, seven episodes? Yeah, six episodes and then three B-sides on Machinic Unconscious. That's literally a second under 17 hours of content. Right, yeah. And we, we, we still didn't finish the whole book. Uh, <laughs> right? hopefully, yeah, there's two chapters left, right? Yeah, hopefully we'll get Alfonso and DC back together. They're both very, very busy guys, and we're we're proud of them. And some of the most interesting stuff is left in that little playlist, the, it, but it's mostly on Proust. So uh, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing that we took a break, but uh, you know some of the some of the some of the juiciest stuff that Guattari finally like implements all the theoretical scaffolding he's cobbled together earlier. And so you know it, we're not strangers to talking about the mad scientist, the mad lad, um, Felix Guattari. Certainly not with you having translated that work, of course. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, Machinic Unconscious was really, that's probably, honestly, the biggest foray into Deleuze and Guattari's work in general that I've done. Seriously, because we even delved into, we brought in, a, we primarily were drawing from a thousand plateaus in those discussions, right. but we did yeah. bring in maybe at least one chapter of Anti-Oedipus as well. We poked around in Anti-Oedipus yeah. a little bit, yeah. You know, yeah. most of my knowledge and you know it's all like secondary sources Mm -hmm. so 
it was kind of interesting. It was good. I kind of saw why you kind of recommended three ecologies as perhaps the way to make your like the entry point for Watari's solo work. And I feel like it kind of hit a lot of the uh, some of the bigger points and notes that he references in Machinic Unconscious, but also other, you know, it builds on that and some of the other stuff, some of the later, the later work as well. Right. Because so, you've been reading Chaosmosis too, right? You've been kind uh, of a little bit. Yeah. I was uh, primarily just to see, I wanted to, you know, we're doing the swamp thing discussion and I right. wanted to look at, you know, what kind of ecosophy he had put in that book. Cause I remember there's at least like one or two chapters in there that I just took a look at really quickly. Like there are a lot of really cool little turns of phrase that Guattari comes up with, you know, you name one of them ecosophy, right? Obviously from, you know, it's playing off of philosophy, which is love of wisdom and ecosophy being, you know, love of the oikos of the, of the home. Oikos has other meanings too, but primarily, right. We think of, um, you know, oikos as, as the home. And it's interesting, you know, since we've been doing a little bit of economy, right. That, you know, um, the economy, that's a nice oh. little slip there. <laughs> well, we did libidinal, libidinal economy, right. And so economy <laughs> too has the term oikos in it as well. And we, we sometimes forget that because we think of economy as being outside the home, but at least since Aristotle, you know, you had the the divisions of labor between the, the male, the head of the household, sort of running the outside, the economy outside, and then the, the wife running the household, the inner economy, sort of ruling over the slaves and all that stuff, which, you know. In any case, so ecosophy is a wisdom of the home and thinking through of making the cosmos habitable, which he says is one of the the prongs of, of the tripartite approach that he has. Um, but there's there's other stuff like in Chaosmosis, you know, he subtitles it. Uh, an ethico-aesthetic theory, I think. An, an ethico-aesthetic paradigm. Paradigm, right, yeah. Right, yeah. So you will see some of this in Three Ecologies where he's wanting, for example, when he wants to kind of summarize his qualms with the present current state of analytic theory, psychoanalysis, psychiatry, and its future, he's thinking of bringing in more of an, an ethico-aesthetic view that, that I think is important if we realize how much, uh, especially with Lacan returning to Freud and Freud himself, so insistent upon building psychoanalysis, even if tentatively and speculatively on scientific principles, right, uh, of trying to, to make psychoanalysis have the scientific backbone. And so I think that the Guattari is right to want to, uh, to initiate a paradigm shift that doesn't sacrifice these other more, these other, not just the ethical and the aesthetic, but really this this overarching institutional view of groups which we'll get into I, i'm just kind of throwing out a little bit but the last thing i would say chaosmosis itself is 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 a fascinating term in english because we get we hear chaos and osmosis but really guattari is pulling off of stuff that he and deleuze and guattari take from i believe it's is it samuel butler is it Joyce, I have to Google it, uh, the word chaosmos. It's a slamming together of the words chaos and cosmos. And so 
in French, that's that's the word that they use, chaosmos, right? And I think Guattari may or may not have been intentionally punning on osmosis at all. Are you looking this up where it comes from? You know, that's interesting. And earlier, before he had... Finnegan's coined- Wake, James Joyce. Joyce. Okay, Joyce. They might get from Butler, Erewhon, but it, that might be Joyce too. You know, they, they pull a lot from English-speaking uh, novelists. I guess the last thing is he, he coins that term chaosophy, which becomes the title of one of his collected works of essays, which is also a pretty good starting point for yeah. um, for getting into Guattari's solo work. You contributed to that as you translated yeah, some pieces. Yeah, I, I translated a little bit for it, including the introduction by their biographer, um, Francois Doss. I did the little introduction to that. And I think the little essay I also did was Gangs in New York. I can't remember if I did anything else. I think that might have been it. Um, that was sort of right before doing the Machinic Unconscious. It was kind of like a stepping stone. So yeah, I mean, like, so Chaosophy, obviously, you know, Guattari has been, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, we, we can think of him as a mad scientist, apart from all the diagrams and stuff <laughs> that he inherits from Lacan, which we've also talked about, you know, his interest in chaos, which you retweeted a nice quote from... I assume from a thousand plateaus, but it could be, it could actually be from what is philosophy, this notion that chaos is less the absence of determinations than the infinite speed at which, at which things come to be and pass away, right? Without consistency. So it is this, you know, it is a social, I, I, and it sounds more like what is philosophy, but it is this, um, this question of an infinite speed at which things come into being and pass away without taking on consistency. And, um, and this whole, fascination with with chaos is you know he gets some of this from Prigogine and St- and Stangers you know the they they wrote they co-wrote a couple of books but one of them's Order Out of Chaos he they, he kind of quotes them early on in in this work Three Ecologies and you know the burgeoning of chaos theory and these other things but you know he's he, you can even see in his earliest contribution to conceptual creation this notion of transversality and coefficients of transversality. He's interested in questions of entropy, questions of, you know, harnessing little doses of of chaos, if you will, so that we protect against a sort of rigidification uh, of order that would come to stifle creativity, right? So I think that that for Guattari, chaos too is um, potentially harboring of singularities of creativity and these other things and not necessarily something that just needs to be warded off say like with someone like Kant you know the question of chaos for Kant is you know how can we even begin to think lest we sort of posit a belief in a principle of reason right if we don't have if we don't start there thought can't move forward in chaos so I think for Guattari, we see that harnessing chaos, if it's kind of like deterritorializing or crafting a body without organs, right? You can botch it. It can, it can overwhelm you. It can destroy you if done without a certain tact and a certain, I don't know the, the good word for it, you know, a certain circumspection, if you will. Yeah. All of that, you know, it goes into the background of why we, we thought we would talk about three ecologies today and, and Guattari's contribution to this discourse that is only going to become more and more insistent, which is the, the potential fragility of 
the ecosphere of the earth's habitable conditions, at least for humans, you know, I mean, there's, there'll probably still be cockroaches and scorpions long after we're gone. And of course, you know, Guattari takes as a given that humans have a, a definite and potentially measurable, extremely measurable effect on these conditions, right? I mean, he's writing this in the 80s and, you know, you see, you see more and more, even then there was more acceptance, even by conservatives, that global warming or climate change or whatever you want to call it, or, you know, that humans had an effect on the environment. And, and we've seen a, a, we've seen more and more retreat from that, not just possibility, but just it's, it's more of like a repression, right, that woven into conservative politics and even forms of centrist politics is this, well, we're agnostic about man maybe is like the best you might get, right? Maybe man, because of course, dealing with that and making that a primary concern already calls into question the logic of certain forms of capitalism, logic of what he calls integrated world capitalism, right? Why do you, I'm curious why you have uh, changed your, your take as far as this text, Three Ecologies being the best entry point. I could see definitely in reading it, like I mentioned earlier, I could see why, because it does give, you know, it touches on some, I mean, he repeats some of the ideas from Machinic Unconscious uh-huh. and then some other works. Schizoanalytic well. cartographies, potentially. Yeah. I, I think that, that that was, rereading it, I was worried that some of the uses of these big concepts, right. which we'll, we can get into at some point, yeah. but like, you know, existential territories, um, universes of reference or universes of value, he'll, yeah. he'll use both of those. Those two big terms, which is only two of the the big four, um, if you want to think of it as this quadripartite, this fourfold that you see in uh, throughout schizoanalytic cartographies. I, I'm a little bit worried that that, that Watry is not concerned with that's not his concern with elaborating these concepts, but he still uses them in a way that might befuddle the the reader or just might be gobbledygook. It adds more fuel to the fire for those first coming to Guattari that so-called and Breek Mon are right, that Guattari is, it's fashionable nonsense. It's so funny. And in their book, Fashionable Nonsense, they they have a, a pretty, I would say, fairly well-argued chapter on Deleuze. Their chapter on Guattari is like a page and a half of chaosmosis, and then just basically like, what the fuck is this? Hmm. That's like all it is about Guattari, and so they are extremely dismissive of his um, of his work, and I'm sure that that it drove them crazy. Even you know, maybe they had some interns that were like, go go get me something crazy from Guattari. We're not going to read this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's obvious that they they didn't want to give him the time of day, and I, and I get that. I mean, I get that that he has that effect. I mean, one of my favorite professors, Sid Littlefield, from when I was doing a philosophy undergrad, you know, he was very influential on me and he had these strong takes against Guattari. He was a big Deleuzean, but he he had these interesting takes that Guattari contaminated Deleuze or, you know, infected him with with nonsense or with, you know, lack of clarity, etc. Yeah. So I would just suggest that when reading Three Ecologies, I mean, I do think that that when they you know, this was just an essay in French and, you know, the collaborators, the 
was it Pendar and Sutton, right? Ian Pendar and Paul Sutton, they translated it. They do a great little translator's introduction. I think it's, it's nice. And they give tons of translators footnotes throughout the essay. And then we, and then the book ends with Gary Janosko talking about transversality and transference. So as a whole, I think that the book stands it's just that if you skip Janosko's, you know, um, you know, his post face and you skip the translator's introduction and just read Guattari without looking at the footnotes. And that's the first thing you read of him. I do think that that was where my reservation came in, that it might be a stumbling block and it might be a turnoff. Just having sampled a little bit. Of, I mean, chaosmosis isn't that at least at the beginning, the first couple of chapters isn't super crazy. It, it does it get a, crazier. It does yeah, get yeah. crazier. As you go but, on. Yeah. Like chapter 34, et cetera. Like it yeah, gets a little bit wild. But it is a wild. fun crazy. I think always his work is that way, but just in terms of an entry point. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I just got a copy of Psychoanalysis and Transversality for a long time. Whenever I looked to get that book, it always was overpriced, but I found it at a good price recently and looking through some of that stuff. And it's his collected articles from, I think, 55 to to like 68 to late 60s, maybe around 70, maybe 55 to 70. It's some of his earliest stuff. And I think that this, I think that that is crucial for giving background to what is at stake in anti-Oedipus with, you know, decrying the state of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Watery, you know, his, his essays on the the analysis of institutions on transversality, et cetera, on just sort of, you know, cause we, we can't forget that from his earliest work in the fifties, working at Laborde, which is more or less, we could call it an experimental framework for, I, I say it's experimental because it, in contrast to the old asylum where you just locked away crazy people and got them out of the, you know, the public and just chained them up or whatever, you know, we can imagine what happened with Schreber during his eight year treatment. I guess it was five, six years, doesn't matter. But Laborde had this idea that, you know, the the doctors aren't the masters, that there isn't, it was was trying to disestablish some of the traditional hierarchies of doctors and nurse and patient, you know, therapeutic sessions were held in common and much more group oriented. There was much more of, if you will, a kind of a freedom for patients, but also for the orderlies and the and the nurses to take on different tasks sometimes in a way that 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 may have frustrated the individuals working there but the goal obviously was to allow for a kind of group infusion as sartre might call it right where subjectivity isn't serialized and top down from you know dr guattari and dr uh, uri giving orders to delegate, delegating orders, and then the nurses come and, and are the functionaries of authority, etc. It, it, it was all about sort of experimenting with relations of power with it, within an, a, a psychotherapeutic institution. Right? Yeah. yeah. So you see three, three, three ecologies. I think that if the reader comes with that in mind, that this is some of the work that Guattari has been doing for, has been practicing for 30 years, and has been thinking about in terms of politics and not, you know, this this intersection of the political machine and the analytic machine, or he calls it the, you know, the coupling together of the analytic machine, the revolutionary machine of weaving together nodes of the libidinal and the political. 
I think that that's like Guattari's main concern and whether or not he succeeded is, you know, is, is obviously up for debate, but what he leaves us with theoretically, I think three ecologies is a nice, I think it's a nice abbreviated expression of trying to open this even further, right? Outside of just the walls of an institution and thinking broadly across these dimensions of the social, the mental, and, and the environmental, which I think is a pretty good good segue, right? We should maybe maybe talk about what the three ecologies entail. Social, mental, environmental. And I'm curious just maybe to like open up the discussion on on the three ecologies. For, for those who haven't listened, you know, one of the little interesting facts about Guattari is that he studied a bit under Lacan. And uh, I mean, he was very much, I think when he was at the Sorbonne during, you know, during his schooling, he was the Lacan whisperer, so to speak, like he would had all these uh, rare <laughs> Lacan texts and so forth. And so he memorized whole essays, whole texts. Yeah. And would would recite them. He he'd get you in a corner and <laughs> recite Lacan to you, and probably drive people crazy. Like that meme of the guy. The two memes. There's one at the baseball game where the guy yes. is like talking to the girl, or the the one at the, the, uh, the dance at floor. the club. Yeah, 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 exactly. Where the guy's like right in the girl's ear. <laughs> exactly like that, right? The reason I brought that up was just because to me, I was started to think. I kind of had this idea that okay, this social, mental, environmental. I wonder if Guattari is somewhat inspired by the three Lacanian registers of real, symbolic, imaginary, if not in the in the spe- specific sense, in a, in a certain broad sense. Because he's trying to, he says one of the biggest mistakes that is made or to make is to try to carve up the real in particular. Right. And so I think one interesting piece of Lacan's work that where the reason I say this is because in Lacan's later work, when he starts to do, and, and you can correct my pronunciation because I don't actually know how to correctly say it. What is it? The uh, Borromean knot? Yeah, the Borromean knot. Borromean knot. Okay, that sounds better. Which is effectively the real symbolic imaginary that all sort of overlap in the center. or there, And then there's these little gaps there. But then you also have in late Lacan, the synthome, which is sort of, you're able to sort of transverse these different reg- Lacanian registers. And so I kind of felt like there was perhaps a clear through line from, at least from an inspiration standpoint, to this notion of the three ecologies of social, mental, and environmental, right? Because you could say what social could, what's that, the uh, symbolic, more or less, mental, perhaps you could say imaginary, and then environmental would be real as a sort of loose metaphor or like way to to shoehorn those in there. But I I don't know. I think that that's actually admirable. And um, I think that there are as you said, there there are similarities, and one can even go and strongly say that there might be analogies, and right. and we do see that that you know Guattari, while he, he, I'm glad you brought up that quote about carving up the real, because he will say in the middle of this essay, three ecologies, that you know the problems of the social, mental, and environmental, right? They are all intertwined in a way that you know, as you said, you, you can see as a Borromean. Bromian not. I think that the that for Guattari though that his aversion to this dictum that the unconscious is structured like a language, specifically a mathematical language. I think he feels like that use of the symbolic it becomes for him it becomes less useful insofar as I mean we could just there's a number of reasons probably but you know the two would be 
one, Guattari is interested in analyzing groups, right? So he takes this institutional view and thereby, I think this is one of the reasons why psychoanalysis, uh, this isn't the only reading, but the, the move from talking about psychoanalysis to, to him talking about schizoanalysis, I mean, we could say that it's about this move from continuing Lacan from not merely focusing on neurosis as Freud does, but also including notions of psychosis at the heart of society. But I always try to think of it as Guattari's dissatisfaction with, especially you can see this in early Lacan, maybe not later Lacan, because it becomes more and more, as you said, uh, topological and, and whatnot. But with early Lacan and obviously with Freud, so much of Guattari's dissatisfaction is with the fact that it is, it comes down to this notion that transference is an artificially created and necessary indisposable tool in the analytic situation between two people. Even if Lacan wants to say like, oh, we had the symbolic that's always there. So it's at least three, you know, Guattari is, wants to dislodge psychoanalysis's fetishism of focusing on individuals, because it's precisely by focusing on individuals that you can situate them back into the Oedipal triangle, right? With mommy and daddy standing in for the social, yeah. right? And anti-Oedipus, you know, and Guattari's other works on transversality and whatever he wants to, he wants to ignite and explode this suffocating kind of strangulating view on focusing on me, as right. as a person, as a patient, it, with with my history and baggage, and totally disregarding the social and the environmental. So I think that, that that that's how I read this wanting to even just get rid of the the psyche and psychoanalysis, and wanting to talk about schizoanalysis and everything kind of skits and flows outside and overflows the boundaries of of my body, my ego, and even my my history to include this much, much bigger picture, potentially even including like the, the influence of the, of the cosmos. And, um, and I think that that's one of the, it's one of the, the hinge points of Freud, because we talked about Schreber, right? And this notion of basically being, being fucked by the cosmos with Freud, Schreber is this hinge point where he has this nod to go outside of just the individual's self-contained entity but he redoubles back on it and comes to a point in his theoretical development where he starts to elaborate more and more about narcissism and how narcissism becomes this relation that then sheds light on transference etc i think watery is you know having studied under lacan for seven years and this return to freud and and having having obviously been immersed in freudianism as you would call it. There's a, you had that quote up just a second ago, but it was, it was great about how Freudianism on the one hand allows for certain tools that can promote the working through of symptoms. But on the other hand, it lacks a creative inspiration. It lacks, and it lacks a kind of, you know, openness to the outside. Whereas other forms of political intervention lack the first dimension and they may have the second. So like you can see how he's trying to like take this Lacano Freudian machine and and tinker with it and cause it to to be open to to the the great the great outdoors, if you want to say it. I mean, I think that to, to perhaps 
Lacan problematizes the subject, but in a maybe not in such a. I think maybe Guattari picks up on that little portion of maybe later later uh, Lacan and and runs with it here. I think maybe Lacan's own ego wouldn't allow him to to step outside of his. You know what I mean? His own limitations as far as where he was willing to go with his ideas, right? Because he does, and I think you know I mentioned this in our Swamp Thing discussion in a, in a little section or little paragraph from chaosmosis is that one thing he kind of picks up on is Lacan with the object is deterritorializing the object of desire. So I think that's an example again of how Guattari rather is taking some inspiration or like taking these concepts and kind of running with it and putting his own spin and opening it up to something more, more expansive, more holistic than even what Lacan was trying to do with, with his version of take on Freud or what have you. Yeah. You know, Janosko, you know, who's written, more about Guattari's solo work than than anyone that I know of, at least in English, probably in any language. But I'll be provisional there. I don't want to. I don't want to discount certain French thinkers who've done some good work too. Uh, you know, Janosko makes it that we see that that Lacan, as you said, in his later term, you know, in his later years, he's he is trying to think about the discourse of the master and trying to articulate that. You know, it's not enough for the analyst to play the strong superego or the master that can that can teach the the analysis and the patient's ego to be stronger and, and to face the symptom with August, you know, with with gusto and, uh, and and bravado and whatever that that Lacan did struggle with this. Janosko makes it out to be that it's the cohort around him. You know, we can name Leclerc, Manoni, some of these other figures that that continue throughout a lot of these seminars, you'll see them. Um, but this little cohort of, of Lacanians that Guattari seems to have issue with. And some of this gets said in, in Anti-Oedipus, you know, I mean, it's it's the same with, I think that, that what's interesting is, is like, even though Freud may have more than Lacan ever did try to establish himself as the good father, as the strict authoritarian father that that knows, that presumes to know, and that and that has the right course for psychoanalysis to trek. You see all these fragments of, of thinkers, Jung, Rank, Frenzy, et cetera, breaking off from him and, and doing their own things for good or ill. You know, with Lacan, we could say that he may have questioned his own, his ego aside, right? Which we know biographically, <laughs> he, had a, he had a healthy ego as one would need to. But, but Lacan problematize the, the status of the master much more so than Freud. And yet, as Janosko says, Guattari, having trained with him for seven years, I think from 62 to 69, and we can imagine that May 68 might have led Guattari to, to rethink right. associating himself with this really, I think that Janosko says it's like a fascizing oh, yeah. word or whatever. That right. these, but these, I mean, it's uh, a cult. These, of, I mean, the, I don't yeah, think you're that far. That's a good <laughs> yeah. It's a cult of personality with Lacan. Right. You know, obviously, and I mean, you can see that in the bio, biographical details. Of, you know, we were kind of joking last night. I mean, there's a, an excerpt where <laughs> talking about this chef that Lacan would, you know, he would visit these Parisian restaurants and just be like farting and burping and so forth. And, you know, Lacan being, you know, this is not, it's not like, I mean, Lacan was a celebrity. He was, yeah. he was a millionaire by the end of his life. So it's not as if he's going to, you know, like uh, Denny's and farting. He's going to like probably the chicest Parisian restaurants because he was a man of, you know, that's the kind of dude he was, right? Which which makes it more monumental and noteworthy, right? I mean, if he's going to, as you said, Denny's or Waffle House and, and farting the place up, that's 
you know, that's one thing. Although it would be noteworthy for someone of his status Certainly. to have been visiting. But as you said, he's going to these, these you know, hoity-toity restaurants. And it, it reminds me a lot of, his name is Peeps, P-E-P-Y-S. Samuel? He, I believe it's his name in the 17th century. Yes, you know, there was, the, there, was, there was the great fire in, in London and he kept this fastidious diary from, I'm trying to remember, I think it was like the 1660s to 1670s, if I remember correctly. Yeah, 6060 to 6069. So it, it's really important for understanding this. Um, there was a lot of shit going on as you're, as you're seeing, looking at the Wikipedia page, there's, there's a plague, there's a great fire, and he's keeping this meticulous diary and there's there's this interesting passage about he and his buddies at a tavern, and I don't think Peeps himself talks about it, but it, like his friends are, are are fucking these barmaids out in the open. They're not they're not going back in private. And of course, he mentions that they're they're having anal sex, right? Because you don't want to have offspring from you know something. And he just he just notes it like it's the it's the most common thing. Anyway, I bring that up because it jives a little bit with what Foucault was talking about that even though this is before the Victorian period, this is the restoration period, but just this notion that sexuality taking place, you know, in in public, not a thing to even bat an eye at, you know, had a logic. This is why you're fucking these girls in the ass, you know, it, it, but it reminds me a little bit of that, like, you know, the, the just the notion of, I think of the great, like, the Renaissance writers like Rabelais and these other guys who are who 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 do depict these quasi heroic figures of the buffoon, right? As you kind of called Lacan yeah, last yeah. night, right? <laughs> he's a buffoon, and Lacan performing this almost, um, whether or not even consciously, maybe it became just a right thing. But I I, I assume he had enough self-awareness to know I, I mean you wonder it maybe like early on but i feel like there's another story about him being invited to the u.s to come speak and i think the person that was like i forget which university it was like columbia or nyu something like that and uh, they had invited really the one at sartre to speak and mm. so they couldn't get sartre they got lacan and there was this whole kind of mixed up it sort of been better known at the time yeah. oh yeah and uh it was funny like he <laughs> Lacan speaks or whatever and like they didn't know that it someone didn't know that it wasn't Sartre or they were like there was some confusion there and Lacan was not made aware that of this whole like they had initially they really wanted Sartre and so he was like well tell him it's Lacan <laughs> yeah I, I have know, to find I, this article but I thought that no, was no, just that's, a funny story about yeah well t tell him I'm Lacan like he's not <laughs> yeah know, I, he's like Prince at this point or right. Madonna uh, right Especially in France, you know, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think it, I think it, I think it was more after his death that he, you know, but it was maybe around the around the nearing his death that he would have started inflowing with Foucault, Derrida and, uh, you know, structuralism as a as a whole belatedly had this existence in in English that it had already been passe in French. Right. As as yeah. we know, studying liminal economy and and things like that by Leotard. And I, but I do think that all this, this little aside, this excursus talking about Lacan is important for getting back to your point that yes, Genosco points out that Guattari began to become averse to the cult following that Lacan had. And we can imagine that his, 
analyses of institutions and analyses of, as I use the Sartre term groups and fusion, you know, he's seeing that he doesn't really belong, one can imagine, to this Lacanian diehard following. And there's a really interesting right. text collected. It's a roundtable. It's collected in the Chaosophy text. I think it's one of the first, and it's Deleuze and Guattari. And there's several interlocutors, and one of them is... Um, Pierre Clasters, who's, you know, who they draw upon his anthropology of his society against the state. They use him very heavily in chapter three of Anti-Oedipus to sort of talk about the evolution of the of the state and stateless societies. But there's another interlocutor there, one of the one of the main followers of Lacan, who even begins to apart from Deleuze and Guattari, begins to talk about the machinic aspect of desire or of the desiring object, object, right? The, uh, the machinic object, if you will. And um, of course, he he has merits and has and goes far, but he doesn't go far enough with it. And they, they have a pretty heated ex- exchange. Leclerc wanting to defend, you know, the master in this, uh, this round table. And, um, you know, I'll just say it, it doesn't, their their differences in terms of the machinic doesn't get resolved in this roundtable itself, but Leclerc is basically trying to call them out for bastardizing Lacan or for attacking him unduly. And and really they, I mean, and, and, and really they do kind of say straight out in Anti-Oedipus that this isn't as much against Lacan as against Lacanians. And they, they cite heavily from Leclerc, from the two Manonis. There's a couple of other... Lacanians they cite, you know, we've talked about one of the, one of the Lacanians that they uh, admire most is Laplanche and Laplanche himself goes on his own trajectory away from Lacan and develops uh, a generalized theory of seduction, right? Returning to this early Freud, you know, because Freud wanted to base neurosis on childhood sexuality, but he, but in this early, in his early theory of seduction, but he took too literally that every sort of, um, every kernel of fantasy that structured symptoms based on childless sexuality would have been a real event in the child's life. Not that obviously there aren't children that, that are, you know, abused and molested and these other things, but that it would have to be universally widespread. And so he abandons that theory, but Laplanche revises it and shows how we always already, because of our helplessness and because of our reliance on caregivers, we always have some sort of, you know, our self-preservation needing to rely on others, others, adult others always without unconsciously implant uh, the seeds of sexuality and the little, really like they start to build the scaffolding of our unconscious before we are, before our egos develop or however you want to use it. And so Laplanche is, is I think one of the few Lacanians that they, Cite with um, with a lot of admiration, and um, you know, with I think with Guattari, you know, there's a there's a sense in which his split from Lacan provisionally is somewhat like Jung's split from Freud. Not that not that not that they not that Guattari and Lacan had the same let's say hierarchical status because for a long time Freud and Jung Freud thought Jung was like the bee's knees and was was his ticket to promulgating psychoanalysis outside of a merely either a merely European 
milieu or merely it being a a Jewish centered science. Like he he needed he he felt Jung was very important for that. But whereas Jung goes in this cosmic direction mythically and mystically, I think Watery still wants to emphasize over and above that, as we said, the ethical, the aesthetic, and not necessarily kick out science, but to but to keep science from being the stranglehold on these on this other paradigm, right? I may regret saying this about Guattari and Jung. I don't I, th- <laughs> I think that I think that my main point was that Guattari has this view that is open, I guess, to well, you have it right here. I mean it's this opening up to the cosmos, right? It is in a sense opening up to the virtual. And while Jung does this in a certain way that is, as I said, that looks for that kind of looks more towards the occult, uh, the mythical, the mystical, which all have certain vectors, obviously, in the evaluation of values. I think for Guattari, he's still at heart. I think he is still at heart a scientist, mad or not. But he's a scientist that, you know, especially with his work on Deleuze, you see how much they draw upon art, upon literature, upon music, that you can't hierarchize one or the other, right? You can't you know, say music's better than science or science is better than music or, or you know, and, and even to a certain extent, myth has its place. It's just that we have to be aware of when we mythologize without even meaning to. And this is where Leotard comes in with this, you know, his stuff about meta narratives. I think is very important for as much as Guattari may have had distaste for Leotard, his, um, you know, his, his pronunciations about being aware of the meta narratives that we bring with us, even in the most liberatory type of movements like, you know, Marxism and the overturning of, you know, the dissolution of classes and the the end of history or the overturning of history, if you will, we have to be aware of the mythological drive that obscures sort of other ways of taking into account the problems on the ground, so to speak. I like this way that, Guattari takes a look or the way that he problematizes subjectivity. I love how he defines that it's, it's as a better way to approach it is these, these components of subjectivity that mm. are, they can be in open conflict with one another, but they're not, the subject is kind of like a terminal perhaps for these flows of desire and, and so forth, like a screen, which I think is a pretty interesting way to, to look at it in that sort of vein of non-totalizable intensive multiplicity right yeah i mean it's you know we we see that um one of the ways we could think about subjectivity as for him always a group subjectivity and you know kind of like sard has the you know he has the groups infusion versus the serialized groups guattari too kind of has this notion of subjugated groups and subject groups which he develops early on even before his work on um Anti-Oedipus, although Anti-Oedipus is where he he really uses these terms in a way that brings them into relief. You know, there is this sense in which one of the key aspects of, you know, institutional analysis, as you'd say, or this analysis of groups, the two terms that he brings up that he develops most in schizoanalytic cartographies is existential territories and universes of reference or universes of value. Right. And, you know, to be really quick, because, you know, it's because I'm leaving out other other vectors in that 
But, you know, as they describe in A Thousand Plateaus, you know, existential territories are defined by refrains. And we can just say that in a certain sense, you know, if we take his critique of psychoanalysis and its traditional vectors, you know, what are some of the components of the refrains? Well, you know, you've got the either the face to face or the really the face to back seated on a couch, right? So you've got the couch, you know, you've got the talking cure, you've got the two principles of association and what do you want to call it? Basically, you know, implied in association is um, not not holding back, right? Saying the first thing that comes to mind without without thinking about its logical implications, you know. And then you've got obviously you've got the the payment schedule, the contract, if you will, right? All of that is its own territory, and in the transference, you've got many different factors of re-territorialization, right? Whether it be, as we said earlier, about the analyst being the good father or the or the strong superego as the example for the ego of the analyzant to, to rely on, if you will, and to rebuild upon. Or you have the family that, that refocuses the neurotic in a situation, et cetera. So Guattari is interested about how if we take a broader view of groups and think about them in relation to the social and the environmental, along with also the mental, right? Because that, that quote that starts the essay, there is an ecology of bad ideas, right? You know, these all come to form, these all sort of rely upon being ensconced in different territories, whether it be, you know, obviously it, it's, I think that Guattari doesn't want us to say that we can immediately take the cosmos as our territory. That's not how it works, right? I mean, we have to, it's always micro-political for, for Guattari, right? It's, you know, for him, politics is local. And that's always been kind of a, a truism. But I think that Guattari takes that seriously. And the, and the whole thing is, I mean, like one of his key, and I'm getting to universes of value, but the, 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 the main, one of his main, enemies in machine unconscious we see is and he hints at it here is with the rise of capitalism late capitalism integrated world capitalism whatever you call it there seems to be not just there's a there's a contradiction or a tension between not just nationalism and its rise and concomitant with that fascism and um other forms of conservatism right i mean at the time guattari's thinking of you know le pen and his daughter took over the National Front group that's obviously anti-immigration, et cetera. So you have this, this concentration on national identity, but then you also have mixed in with that and sometimes opposed to it, this more and more globalist, not just globalist in the sense of the boogeyman of globalism, but this universalist discourse. That's a better way to put it because globalism has its own, you know, uh, it's this more like we're all human or, you know, the binary division between the sexes or, you know, turfism, shit like that, right? This whole kind of universal logic that would really- Would you say like even the global village was like the common, you know, in the early 90s, in the early days of the web or something like that, the global village, like I think that, w that was a sort of, I think universalist 
especially particularly in the 90s, right? Like that has an right. um, idealistic sort of way to conceive of global capital. Right. Via, yeah. Via, I, via like high speed uh, communication networks that traverse the globe, et cetera. Right. Right. It's, it's this interesting tension between either hyper focusing on, on a specific identity, say, uh, say a nation state or, or, or diffusing abstractly to talking about given universal values, whether it be the nuclear family or, or capital itself, etc. Right. This like Guattari's main issue is fighting both of these, both, both of these at the same time, because what hides behind them is on the one extreme xenophobia and, and fear of the other. And this, you know, this constant politics of in-group and out-group versus this homogenization that really is the logic of capital and and he shows how that logic he, he even says how integrated world capital with its you know with the sort of the belatedness of the nation state which capital doesn't give a shit about anymore but states are able to use these tensions of of identitarian re-territorializations to its own benefit to kind of prop itself up i'm kind of going quickly here but that's that's the main thing so 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 Guattari is is interested in diagramming, analyzing the intersection between sort of the heterogeneity of values, right, which he calls, you know, he'll call universes of values and their instantiation in existential territories, which may end up being extremely deterritorialized from the start, right? He gives the example of Jerusalem and, and God knows that's been a part of still, it's still a part of uh, global politics. Politi- yeah. Political concerns, with Trump, I think, you know, most recently Trump having moved the right agreeing to or acknowledging Jerusalem as the capital rather than Tel Aviv, Aviv just because yeah. of the deep, the sort of factions of Christianity, Judaism and Islam that all converge in this sort of in a sort of its own knot, if you will, its own Bromian knot of Abrahamic religion. Right. So, you know, there's this there's this notion that without problematizing the different ecological vectors, right? Uh, at least three, you know, we can imagine him even Certainly saying- diagramming those out into- Yeah, <laughs> into can even, we can even say, you know, there's an inf- you know, in- infinite amount, but, but right. I mean, like, it, like uh, focusing on those three, this notion of, I'm looking for the, for the quote, this is on page 67. I think this quote deserves to be read. This is right after he cites Walter, Walter Benjamin. So you can, um, you can search for. Yeah. Okay. I see. Here's Benjamin right here. Yeah. And so his, his citation of Benjamin is, is basically the sort of fighting against the abstract, you know, uniformification of everything based on abstract vectors of information. Right. So it's this quote about storytelling. And so Guattari quotes this, this block of Benjamin, which I won't read the reader can refer to on page 67 and you can find PDFs online, just Google three ecologies PDF. But he says, to bring into being other worlds beyond those of purely abstract information to engender universes of references, sorry, universes of reference and existential territories where singularity and finitude are taken into consideration by the multivalent logic of mental ecologies and by the group arrows principle of social ecology to dare to confront the vertiginous cosmos so as to make it inhabitable. These are the tangled paths of the tri-ecological vision. So we will definitely need to we talked a little bit about 
the sort of communication, if you will, or the transversality to use that term in a way that is abstract here, but the, the transversal of universes of reference in existential territories. I think that's the first part. And for him, that's the mental and the social, because on the one hand, it is about cultivating singularity and finitude. And I, I take those two together for him to be, as we kind of said earlier, or as I, I, as I, kind of, I tried to like allude to earlier, this notion about harnessing little bits of chaos in a way. He, he talks about an anti-Oedipus that what groups need to cultivate in a creative way is their own death drive. And by that, he means you look at the big institutions like states, armies, churches, which of these old dogs wants to die, which I think he's quoting Nietzsche there. It's precisely their drive to reproduce themselves in ever controlled, organized, rigidified forms that not only crushes all singularities, crushes all, and in that sense, crushes all vectors of creativity, recreating outside of their own narrow vision, but also denies the finitude of institutions, denies right. finitude of individual groups, which may seem like a good thing. Who who wants finitude? But for Guattari, it's not. It's counter. I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive that that you would think that wooden institutions yeah. want to immortalize themselves and perpetuate themselves indefinitely, and that's part of the problem that denying creativity and indefinitely prolonging leads to a kind of dead end right? It leads to a kind of crushing of all, he called it machine of conscious, the, you know, that capitalism and its, and its abstractification of, of all flows. And basically based on abstract information, which he says here, it is bent upon crushing and destroying not just singularities, but even asperities things. It's, it's, it's trying to, to cancel out the noise that it sees from its own point of view as noise, right? Whereas it's actually different fluctuations and possibilities of, of reevaluating um, itself. So I think that that's, that's part of, and that's why he links it to, what does he say? The multivalent logic of mental ecologies and the group errors principle of social ecology. So right there, that's, I mean, obviously the, the, the point is that it's only in a sort of rigid dialectical bi-univocalization of differences and, and, and their seemingly immediate and necessary contradictions that we already begin to abstract and sift out heterogeneity and reduce it to, uh, to homogeneity. So, and then the second part about the group Eros principle, obviously we talked about Eros and Thanatos with Freud and this notion of how can it's 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 like how can we be aware of social ecology such that we build up groups without necessarily either instituting a rigid hierarchy or instituting this this need to self-perpetuate without the possibility for openness to change right without the possibility for self-analysis so this notion of group eros has to be conjoined with, I talk about it in different ways, but he usually uses the term analyzer. And I like that term because it's not about an analyst or an analyzan. When we get to groups, it's not, I mean, even if 
those trained in analytic theory may have, you know, maybe on the cusp and on the edge, they're not, they're still not necessarily the masters and anyone in the group, if we're not dealing with a serialized hierarchized group can play that role of analyzing the vectors of desire such that we can, such that the group can rethink itself, not only as group, but in its relation with other groups and specifically in its relation to these other ecologies, which is why the last part of the quote is about making the cosmos inhabitable, the to dare to confront the vertiginous cosmos so as to make it inhabitable. Because, you know, just like the body of the organs, just like any sort of deterritorialization and destratification, you can, you can botch it, you can ruin the whole assemblage, you can, we can as humans preclude the conditions of possibility of our existence in our home. So, so I think that that's, that's the other part of the, that's the third prong, which is, which sometimes, I mean, I think that that's, this is the, I think the vertiginousness is that, that sometimes we focus necessarily on one of these and I think Watery wants us to remember not to do so at the expense of the other two. Right. Right. To have that, have a more holistic, holistic vision. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to carving up the real into these discrete categories and so forth. Even the social, mental, and the environmental are, ne- even if they're heterogeneous, they aren't right. They're separate. Still, yeah, exactly. There's that, you know, to use that Baromian knot again, mm-hmm. it's sort of like that but looser and you know like you maybe like if we were doing diagrammatics we could like do a dotted circle rather than a closed off circle to indicate that permeability between those membranes and so forth and this is one that kind of reminded me a bit of one of my big takeaways from leotard and libidinal economy was really the centrality of our of relations even even more fundamental than production in terms of marxist political economy is reproduction and Mm -hmm putting that into extremely sharp relief as this is the fundamental social relation before even capitalism or anything else is is instantiating itself. That's the fundamental thing because that's even more, I guess if you're going in a sort of Freudian way, if you're drawing in on upon biology, that kind of makes sense. That's sort of one thing that jumped out at me in, in terms of what you were elucidating. But also I think there's a couple of things I wanted to mention. So you mentioned this this sort of foreclosure of existential territories maybe is what he talks, uh, Guattari brings up the mass media, I think in particular, and is saying that the, what the, it is doing is closing off these. And I, I can't remember if it's existential territories specifically or not, but it was some existential something. Well, yeah, I, I think that the, the with Guattari, the, the, the problem is obviously that the mass media and here's part of where Guattari may sound conspiracy theorist, but it's, it's not a far stretch. Right. where mass media obviously can, I think that Guattari wants to say that there needs to be sort of a re-singularization of it. And, you know, we got to seize the means of, of circulation of ideas, so to speak, right? Yes, I like that. But, but insofar as we are, and of course he's, you know, he's, he's on the cutting edge of when writing this on of the internet. I mean, there is, you know, the ARPANET and these other networks that are already available, but not the World Wide Web as we know it, but but still he can kind of see the next step in mass media is things like obviously Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram, these other ways of, they are part of producing subjectivity and they are a part of 
animating our our territories. They become these they become these territories that that we inhabit and that that inhabit us. And and we have to be aware that you know when he's talking about sitting in front of a television and the passivity of sort of receiving information and receiving not just information but which problems to focus on, especially if we think of like this, the syndication of local news with, you know, Sinclair broadcasting and their conservative agenda, just as one example, or Fox news, or even CNN with its centrist dilution of everything. And, and obviously MSNBC with its own slightly left of center, arguably, whatever it is, <laughs> populism. I don't know. Yeah. You know, all these different, even if you, even if you get to choose whether to watch CNN or God forbid, CBS or Fox news or whatever the fuck, those choices don't really amount to much. They're still, as he's taking the television as the the main paradigm here, there's this passivity of reception where the ter- where problems are determined for us, whether it be social problems or political problems to focus on, whether it be election cycles or whether it be, you know, protests and riots or, you know, the O.J. Simpson trial, whatever. All this stuff comes prepackaged and fed in a way that is satisfying because and i'm not saying it's just for stupid people right because you know we've all been there consuming media we that's part of how we're social creatures right and sometimes it there is a bliss in not having to determine the problems i mean the whole notion of learning you see this in deleuze but in even in lewis carroll and others i mean the whole notion of learning isn't just to recite the the correct answers right is to have the power to determine the the problems oneself right, right that's, yeah <laughs> so i think that watery yeah. is worried about how mass media in its yeah you can see how it kind of collapses that heterogeneity as you kind of discussed well, in this kind it's of- trying to sell i mean it's trying to sell a product too at the end of the day right, right. i mean it's it's i think that we see this more and more you know from whether we know obviously we have the the big celebrities of the Brokaws and the whatever but you also have the Geraldos and it is selling a product it is selling a it is selling the desire and drive to keep watching mm-hmm. right and so i wouldn't go so far as to say that all mass media all consumption of media is bad and i don't think right. watchery is either yeah um it's just that at the lowest common denominator at its core it is still a function right. of of yeah. selling a product, of adjusting us to become good consumers, right? Of being aware of the latest trends, not so that we can be well informed necessarily. That might be a secondary benefit, right? So we just have to be cognizant of, you know, how we are consuming media and how we, you know, our, ourselves are reproducing its values. I think that that's his main problem. Because with the with capitalism decoding the flows and making them abstract, mass media too is is sort of doing the same thing, but on it's producing subjectivities. It's it's you know not alone, right? Because that gets really conspiracy theory. But it's a, it's a part of the yeah, of it's the part apparatus. of the ecology of the ecological apparatus of capital. Right. So for me, the way I use Facebook, you know, is um, you know, it's it's gone down to bare bones where I, I try to keep up with my family. And that's how some people still use it. But of course, people also get their news from it and they they get caught up in their own little bubble, which they are free to cultivate. 
as we all are on all these social media platforms. And of course, that can recreate these echo chambers of, you know, what do we call it, ideological visions of the world, these, these worldviews. And, um, you know, we can, we can these little into- <laughs> homogenized milieus. Yes, right. That's a good way to put it. And I think that that's the crux between the universes of reference or universes of values and existential territories is that we do have these proclivities that a lot of times we don't reflect on because it's because we get into, obviously we get into habits, we get into, we get into daily grinds. Right. And, and even, you know, I think the Guattari, one word that's that he would have loved is that as the word infotainment to, 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 to finish out this notion of the mass media, right. That infotainment, you know, it's, it's, it's fulfilling some of these, um, these vectors that we've been talking about, right. While enticing us to continue to consume that media form. Right. And you can see it in all kinds of different vectors, but, you know, I'll give two, one negative, one positive. Obviously we see, especially in local news, as I said, not just with Cinco broadcasting, but because it's been going on longer where you have the, the fluff stories, right. More and more, stories about puppies or whatever. And I got nothing against that. I just, you know, that giving doses of, you know, dopamine or, or whatever in between, because you can't, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, you're not always going to necessarily start off with the most morbid realities of, of mass you know, shootings that, or COVID-19 yeah, you, you, deaths, you, you, et cetera. You got yeah. to kind of like <laughs> weave those in at a certain pace, but the, the other part, and, you know, there's, there's other examples of, raising awareness that we see being recreated with, for example, um, the way that Axios tries to package news stories, whether you, that's just one example, but it, it's kind of breaking it down in a way that can be consumed in, in, a, in a way that is digestible and potentially opening one up, one's curiosity up to other vectors. I mean, you know, I used to enjoy watching the Colbert Report, <laughs> right? I know that now he's got his his you know, his night talk show, so it's a little bit different, but in you know, his use of sarcasm to inform and yet make us laugh. I mean, Freud would say that that's just jokes lift the repression and promptly reinstate them, but uh, there there's a way that uh that form itself was social commentary I mean, John Oliver does a pretty good job, say what you will, about whatever, but I always feel like there's a documentarian aspect to his his main segments because it not only informs us about pressing, a pressing issue, but even entails ways in which we can, as individuals and as groups, sort of address the problem and even uh, potentially do, do something to act, which is, you know, kind of the kernels of of documentaries, the best ones, right? Which is not only to inform and to sort of entertain at the same time, but to, to engage us and potentially give the quote unquote, that, that the turn right at the end, which is the call to action. I think that, the, the, that it becomes an issue with even the term mass media, because it, it goes way beyond just sitting in front of a television and, and, and consuming the news, um, which, you know, I remember as a kid after 9-11, Cause I was a kid that's that, that must've been like ratings boost for 24 hour news cycles like CNN and stuff. Not to say that they necessarily 
call for tragedies such as this, but they obviously cultivate them and use use those. Yeah, I mean, you can see this in COVID right. coverage as well. Yep, yep. Which honestly is like the last thing I want to hear about. Give me a <laughs> yeah. few years before we start to have documentaries on these. <laughs> on the other hand, a lot of people's lives have been personally affected, so I'm not right. gonna. Yeah, you very know, true. Um, I think though, even though Guattari does sort of, you know, he's chastising the mass media, but I think even he, even though he doesn't say it, spell it out here and within three ecologies directly in terms of the mass media, but I think he would still perhaps say that. Even within that limiting, like the foreclosure of these existential milieus or territories or whatever the case, whatever terminology is appropriate, that there are still potential lines of flight, um, which he does sort of not directly reference later on in the in the work or the piece is, you know, that there is the potential for that line of flight to go in, in any direction. You can't always predict which direction those those lines will open up. Yeah, I think it's important to say that because... You know, in A Thousand Plateaus, when they describe zones of power, talking about micropolitics and these other things, you know, whether we concern ourselves with states or institutions, etc., zones of power for them are defined by where, how much they are leaking, because they are always potentially leaking, right? And it's desire that's leaking from the infrastructure yeah. and causing cracks and these cracks entail these lines of flight and these possibilities of these possibilities of um, what, what do we say? I, I guess these possibilities of, uh, you know, recreation, right. As he, as he says it, right. Not, not, not necessarily recreation, but, but um, reevaluation, recreation of, and also just of, and also his logic of groups. Right. I mean, he, he even says like, sometimes we'll plug in to these groups. We'll, we'll, we'll invest and we'll even sort of interact with these other groups and try to create these lines, these, these transversal lines, making them communicate and making them enter into resonance and making them form coalitions and et cetera. But, but sometimes unplugging isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? So plugging in and, and unplugging, these, there are these rhythms. And, um, and we see that he did this throughout his political involvement, right? Because you know, he wasn't just involved in, in trying to rethink traditional psychotherapeutic institutions. He was also, I mean, he, he joined and, and left various journals and, um, and groups that were really putting lots of pressure on the traditional French Communist Party, which they, which he, he always sort of faulted for their, you know, their, their, their means of ingratiating himself with the state, whether it be to get electoral votes or whatever, but also their sort of hardline Stalinism, these other things that he saw that they were becoming increasingly, you know, inflexible and rigid in their ways of thinking and their ways of doing politics and their ways of, um, I guess, not creatively uh, allowing for lines of flight or, or for coalitions among the proletariat, whatever, that, that more and more became a status party. And, you know, so we see him sort of going in and out of different Trotskyist, uh, you know, journals and groups and, uh, and trying eventually to like, you know, ultimately, cause for ultimately for him, it was, it was how to get the political vector and the analytic vectors 
going together. And one of the things we see in three ecologies is he still he still ha- he still believes in a future for um, analysis that he doesn't want to just give up the baby with the bathwater that that analysis does have a future, but um, in the broad sense, because he includes psychiatry in that. But he he obviously knows that it's he obviously sees its dark underside with its reliance upon state power or its reliance upon other forms of institutions than Laborde for, um, you know, for for the insane right that that are more and more repressive and more and more sort of at the intersection of of power and knowledge and not in a good way right so so i think that's his fear you know that we could almost say like the gulagization of of an of of, of the analytic future and um you know and, and, and it's and, it, and so he he carries on his own crusade just as freud carried on a crusade against kind of occultism and uh, obscurantism Lacan carried on a crusade against specifically the the British and American versions highlighted by Anna Freud for, you know, even though she had some good ideas, his main problem with that brand is that it just thinks that if the analyst is a presumes to know everything and is a good role model, you know, you can solve all the the patient's problems. He has a, he, he thinks that that is Already, I think Lacan is sensing that that is too insular, right? It's too focused on just a one-to-one engagement. And then you just send them out into the world without ever considering how the world already informs, right? How, you know, their symptoms to begin with. And so Watery, I think, is, is, is pushing this ever, ever further, right? Wanting to engage, tap into the political immediately. That's always at the forefront for him. I wanted to backtrack a bit to, you mentioned a bit about finitude earlier, and I wanted to come back to that because what Guattari says here is that what part of what the mass media does is it pushes out or eliminates this notion of finitude. And you kind of elaborated, you know, the problematics and benefits of, of finitude there. But I think it's interesting in the context of, he gets a little bit, I think, along the lines here of a semi-capital kind of take. And I think in particular, right, like one big thing in terms of finitude that the mass media or media does in general is try to push out death, even though like, yeah, you it pushes out death in the sense of, I mean, maybe not directly as far as, right, you still, you know, there are death numbers from COVID, you know, from whatever U, U.S. conflict is occurring over overseas or what have you, right? Those are still, deaths are reported, but it is still something that is largely pushed outside like it's it's eliminated in so many ways. Reminded me a lot of Baudrillard's work in symbolic exchange and death. Uh, obviously, death being one of the best examples of finitude, and I think capitalism sort of instantiates this eternal this eternal presence, this lack of finitude. So that I don't know that sort of I think colors are the way that we are subjectified, or um, the way that these subjective components coalesce within us. It's about excluding death from because death, capitalism has no use for those that cannot labor, those that are not able to perform actual manual labor, or they're the elderly or, you know, whatever the case may right. be, right? That sort of, the death, you know, we we don't keep our parents in the home, we push them out to a nursing home, etc., right? Absolutely. The dead are, the right. dead are now, you know, you had mentioned, I think, in some previous discussions about how in the sort of medieval cities or like the European cities, the 
the cemetery was sort of at the center of the town. And I think this too, you know, this is something very interesting that Watari does is he extends all of this three ecologies. One portion of that ecological model is the actual, he kind of even refers to it using the the cinema term mise-en-scene of, which is referring to how things are blocked and positioned within the frame of of the camera or like a stage play, for example. But I think even those, those do have, those are material psychological components of subjectivity, right? The very way that cities and towns are laying out in a topological way, let's just say, has an impact on the way that subject, the components of subjectification actually coalesce within the individual. I'll try to tackle <laughs> the first part about death. I thought that was interesting about the the cemetery at the center of town. You know, I mean, it's the same with, you know, your, your point about capitalism. It, it's like this eternal it, present. You often hear that criticism these days, advertising, et cetera, marketing, blah, blah, blah. Like it's all this eternal present, which I think, I don't know if that's exactly what Guattari was necessarily getting at in the same way, but I don't know. It's something that rang. I kind of identified with that element of it well yeah i mean it's drink and be merry right tomorrow tomorrow we die so yeah an eternal present is a good way to describe it it is you know less concerned about the past or the future and more about you know focusing in on you know consuming and enjoyment uh or at least the the pleasure principle at the expense to to anything else you know, and as you said about death, I mean, it doesn't, it already factors in the breaking down of bodies, minds, and, and machines, right, into its cost uh, analysis. So death is just, uh, you know, another sort of another entry on the spreadsheet. And, you know, for Guattari, the way when he's thinking about cultivating death into groups, you know, I, I again, I, I think, it, I think he means it. In, in, in a sense in which it's it's creative, right? In the sense in which it gives fodder and fertilizer, if you will, to to something potentially new. And so, when he's talking about deaths of death, death drive, injecting the death drive into institutions, you know, he is thinking very particularly about the the stranglehold that certain, whether it be ideological positions or positions taken up on behest of lobbying groups or, you know, public relations, you know, all these things about cutting a good image, you know, whether it be for corporations or for, you know, one can imagine, I mean, I was thinking about this earlier about how the, the explosion of, now I know I know you're a comic book fan, but the explosion of Marvel movies is in many ways, if not propaganda, then a kind of fluffing for military expenditures and the glorification of the military-industrial complex, at least on in our little corner of the world. Um, sort of a justification, an ad hoc justification for you know the continued forms of imperialism and the war on terror and these other things right it not only numbs us to it it actually excites us it gets us gets us hard thinking about the you know our means of global domination and and of course you know the other whether it be alien or some villain some supervillain that's you know hostile to 
to humans or whatever, like it, it always serves as kind of the stand in for the glorification of, of war machines that take mm -hmm. war as their object. Right. Right. Because I think it's, again, like this is one of those terms when he throws out that like, it's a question of war machines, you know, he is sort of leaving in the parentheses that they say it's, you know, for Guattari, the war machine is always uh, initially extraneous from the state. It gets appropriated and yeah, captured by right. it and, and thereby takes on war as its own object. Mm -hmm. I'll bring up Nietzsche, right, with this. <laughs> I know this is maybe strange, but I was thinking about like injecting the, the death drive into institutions as a healthy thing. It reminds me of when Nietzsche talks about global peace without a sort of global domination by, by one group over all the others, without a sort of global imperialism or imperium, global peace can come about by the strong giving up their weapons because it has to come from them first. And so like transposing that into one of the things that Guattari is thinking about and how mental and environmental and social ecology are all intertwined, you know, it was, it was very real and still is today, but it was very real that hanging over our heads is this fact that whether it be user error or some sort of uh, machinic malfunction that randomly, without cause, without reason, you know, a whole arsenal of nuclear warheads could fall across the world. And that type of anxiety, we talked about in terms of a Cold War, but really it's like a, it's like a, a pall, a shroud that hangs over the majority of every human's head if they are even slightly, you know, plugged into. And we repress it, obviously, and we... We find ways of not thinking about it, but Guattari puts it out very early on in the three ecologies that this is this that type of death drive, I think, is the negative image of what he is referring to, because it's obviously from the inside. It is a threat to defense ministers and, and defense contract corporations, um, the Sutherlands, right, uh, you know, um, Sunderland, whichever. <laughs> yeah, the 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 you know it is it is a threat to the industrial military complex or or to we could say to churches right because he too is theorizing the sort of the strange evacuation of theism with the rise of certain forms of jingoism and chauvinism and nationalism and all this other stuff right filling that void that it's from the inside injecting that death instinct and forcing them to transversalize, to become creative and to allow for less, to allow for them to, to die and to transform. That's obviously felt as a threat, mm -hmm. but in the same way, the other side, you know, the fact that, and this gets back to the Nietzsche quote, right? That, that those with the nuclear warheads, I mean, traditionally it's been mostly Russia and the United States, although they are in different corners of the world too, like in Pakistan and India, uh, I assume China has some too, right? That those, instead of each nation state saying, well, we need to have a little bit, those bargaining chips too, and have nuclear warheads and why wouldn't they, right? Because that threat is real. The global powers have to need to give up those those types of weapons. And we could push it further to, to drones and to trillion dollar, you know, fighter planes that don't fucking work and shit like that, right? Like all of this, you know, it is libidinal and it is obscene, this, this expenditure on warfare that, that we have 
both parties, right? Democrats too, because they can't look soft and all that shit. They got to wave their, their hard dick around too. They, this notion that defense budgets and, and Biden shows it too, right? I mean, he, it's the typical uh, Democrat thing. They get in and they raise defense budgets because they don't want to get attacked from the right that they're soft on crime or war right. or whatever. Yeah. And that notion that we yearly spend $800 billion on, you know, on war machines that have war as their object instead of viable health care for citizens or universal basic income. You know, I mean, Walter even says here in the in the text, it's a given. This has to this needs to be put into place. And yet we also need to think about more creative ways of, you know, socially belonging together. Those are the two sides of the, of the death drive, you know, and the other, the other question you had, I don't feel like I necessarily wrapped it in. Uh, What was the other side to your, uh, I mean, I had just mentioned like this eternal, this kind of mass media induced eternal present mm. and the the exclusion of death from the socius and like, Right. Like that's really cutting off like a part of the whole ecological milieu is is death and like renewal and so forth. And like trying to excise that out of capitalism, like it tries to put forth this ideal homogenized eternal subject of consumption or like whatever production consumption, et cetera, or its own really its own valorization, its own immortality. Right. Is what cap. That's why I think, again, go to go back to Leotard and the big takeaway for me from liberal economy was that relation to, to reproduction. Obviously death ties into that and it's way that it's like sort of this excluded milieu or like it's the way that we handle death, but particularly in America is like a totally different rate as opposed to like Eastern cultures, like in China and other um, cultures, the dead are revered, right? They're like the ancestors are still present with us in a sense, like day of the dead, right? In South America and Central America, right? Right, right. It's a totally different approach to death than we have in the West. But I, I, don't, I don't know. I think you covered that pretty well. A couple of questions I have for you are points of clarity, not on anything we've discussed thus far, but there were two things and you can see here. One of them, I wanted to kind of just get a feel for what Guattari means by by the virtual fields of virtuality because he's big on, oh, that's like one of his big things is to open up these fields of virtuality. What is that exactly? What does that entail perhaps? And then secondly, and this may even go back to where he differs from Lacan, because I don't know if Lacan necessarily deals with a signifying with a significations as much as Guattari. I know that's a big point of discussion in Machinic Unconscious is like the a signifying. What is it? The semiotic asperities and shit like that. <laughs> right. The a yeah. I mean, for, he calls it ruptures here, but I think there's a right, term that, for a signification or. A, a signifying and a subjective semiotic, I mean, he'll call them signs, right? Which seems counterintuitive, but signs for Guattari don't necessarily signify in the Caesarian linguistic sense, right? I think that's his, that's his break. So when he talks about the different semiotics, the he talks about the economic semiotics, the techno-juridical, the, he has a few others where he, he breaks it down. So I'll deal with that one first. I mean, like he gives, even in this, uh, he gives the example of, you know, what he brings up in the machine unconscious with, um, you know, Von Tuil's little phrase, you know, and how this little melody, this little refrain doesn't obviously signify, right, in any traditional sense. So we think of music, I mean, like he even says that 
if we think about if we think about hyper deterritorialized territories of existence, music and poetry can just as much uh, potentially provide those anchors as a nation state, right? If we take the logic far enough. So, so with Vontal Wheel's little phrase, it's, it's just an example of how the narrator, well, not Swan and the narrator, they can both, they are both sort of entranced by the play of these signs that point towards different universes of value and different territories for them to inhabit. One ends in a failure because of a re-territorialization on, on, on a sort of jealous, mad love, and the other is able to use that to propel him towards, towards this creativity, towards artistic creation, right? So I think that, you know, with a good example that Guattari gives, because I guess it would be like a whole dissertation, right? But a good example that Guattari gives is how traditionally psychoanalytic transference and the, the analytic situation is centered on sort of the face-to-face encounter. Now, obviously, like when free association is going on, the patient's on the couch, whatever, and faced away, because Freud is thinking about how the patient will try to adjust their what they say by looking at his face, whether or not he's signifying anything or not. So, but the whole point is like, still though, even with that awareness, we see that he is trying to re-territorialize the patient's desire, maybe not consciously, but he ends up doing this because it works for neurotics back onto the identifications of the father, of the mother, of the boss, etc. And so those would be icons of Borgwatri. And by icons, he just means that they have a kind of a sort of actual consistency where their redundancies are can be linked up in a chain of of signifiers, whether we call it the imaginary and Lacanian sense or whatever. And and the reason why so icons are generally what allow for us to to re-territorialize desire on resemblances, right? We can think about the play of icons and the role of icons in the Catholic Church, right? With the face of Mother Mary or the face of Christ. Faciality is very important for Guattari precisely because it generally is the domain of icons, right? Of, of kind of focusing desire in a way that that allows it to to have this, you know, this sort of echo chamber, right? And and Guattari is more interested in sort of in analyzing groups and thinking about institutional spaces, he wants to remove the focus from the, the face of the father or the face of the master, the face of the one presumed to know. And, and I think that that's where the a signifying comes in, right? Because it's not necessarily about for Guattari, at least the logic of, you know, the logic of singularities and the logic of some of the most unprecedented creations and evolutions don't necessarily rely upon signifying. I mean, as I say in A Thousand Plateaus, you know, language isn't necessarily about communication or information. I mean, it's not necessarily <laughs> about uh, signifying because no matter, you can look at any 
sort of um, whether it be any everyday event or sort of it's always going to signify and it doesn't necessarily have an intention behind it. And there's, I think that that's the interesting thing about, you know, identifications and transference and faciality is that there is this need to look into the signifying mechanisms and unearth behind them intentions and intentionality. Right. And, and I think that for Guattari, this gets us in a kind of, this can have the, the possibility of getting us into this rut or this echo chamber or this feedback loop that essentially is negative. So this is why music and poetry, insofar as they, at the limit, break down that reliance on signification or Deleuze might say representation, right? I mean, they, they, they have sub-representative and sub-significational intensities that sort of boil up beneath them and overflow them on all sides, you know, and I think that that's, that's just kind of taking the point of view that it is a given that things will signify and that doesn't necessarily, or that things will represent. Um, this is something that we, we necessarily can't do without. I mean, Lacan even points it out with the symbolic. It's, it's this, we always already kind of inherited even from before our birth when we're gestating, if you will, right? We're sort of a place is left for us in the signifying chain. That's fine. That that makes sense. But that is not the end all be all for Guattari and how desire always overflows that that and and isn't and can't be reduced to just a link in the chain. And in fact is constrictive if we remain on that simple level of analyzing desire based on traditional modes of meaning making, right? It's precisely the, the advances in, you know, in painting, the advances in poetry in the last, you know, century and a half or whatever that have moved, you know, that have questioned the supposedly given principles of representation or grammaticality, et cetera, right? And a, a good example of an asignifying rupture would be, and Lacan himself kind of gets at this, but he doesn't use these same terms, but I mean, it's precisely when things don't make sense and when precisely when the analyst or the analyzer in, in, in Guattari's sense, it's precisely when nonsense erupts and has the ability to erupt. And when we, it's precisely when we, we acknowledge that we don't understand that breakthroughs are allowed to happen. So, <laughs> you know, so I guess that's part of it. And um, I guess that's really, why I'm always acknowledging my inability to understand. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, cause like what we're doing here, we're, we're sort of, you know, we're flying off the seat of our pants and trying to sort of articulate yeah. You know, what are the things that move us? What are the things that... We're almost doing like a group analysis in a sense, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, and it's the same thing with, I think, I think th this already plugs into your question about virtuality, right? Because, you know, if we imagine that the virtual and the actual are all along the lines of roughly along the lines of bodies and events, let's just say in terms of like logic of sense, or, right. you know, if you, if you look at like Bergson, you could, yeah. you could talk about extensive multiplicities and intensive multiplicities, et cetera, right. That there is 
this is why in what is philosophy, the domains of art, science, and well, sorry, uh, I won't go down that route. My the main <laughs> point being is like, if we, if we consider his ethico aesthetic paradigm and we consider that he is interested in this logic of intensities of intensive multiplicities that i think is where for guattari the 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 virtual would 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 be involved in this negotiation of whether it be analyzing desire or whether it be conjoining the revolutionary and the analytic machine because it's precisely how is it that how is it that the virtual you know becomes instantiated in bodies and and what he would say existential territories right i mean this is one of the things that he tries to do at the end of his life with the schizoanalytic cartography is a mapping out how it is that reevaluation can and therefore recreation can occur um without any you know precedent right and and that's particularly by sort of harnessing the virtual and one of the things that he even like coins to sort of talk about this he talks about you know the hyper deterritorialized objects of science particles right that that are theoretically in their presupposition they allow for experimental assemblages to theoretically work and this allows us to um you know to conceive of art and music and poetry and even the works of Joyce and Proust and these other things as these as these experimental assemblages like um, superconductors and su- or super colliders, right? That, that, that kind of smash together these disparate particles to, to, to then analyze what comes about from the encounter. So I think that for, cause I was about to go down a Deleuzean sense and talk about the virtual <laughs> and actual, but I don't think that's as, as important here. I, right. think for, I think for Guattari, the, I think that for him, the virtual is always this, potential stock or reservoir undecidable uncharacterizable beforehand of of the creation of values right and this is gets back to the sort of the siphoning of chaos and um you know the the injection of the death drive and these other things that i think for him that's the particularly the work of the of the virtual that which is why i think it's closer to some of the discussion that Lewis has of events, right, and um, and the Stoic logic, but it doesn't necessarily coincide with it because Guattari isn't necessarily concerned with writing a philosophical tract. Usually, sometimes he is talking to philosophers, but he's not necessarily doing philosophy. And I think here too, that's that's also the case. But we see, you know, elsewhere, you know, he's not concerned with. He's not always concerned with making everything explicit, right? Because so so much of it has to do with with trying out these new connections uh, among machines, among literary machines, and and scientific machines, and analytic machines, revolutionary machines, political machines, right? He's he's always concerned with how they interact. So um, so yeah, I guess that's that's where I would. I would leave. As far as discussion today is concerned, are you feeling like we're close to wrapping it up or 
So I think there were, I mean, I don't know if we wanted to, maybe the only things I perhaps thought we might discuss before closing out is like the, the regimes of semiotic or the, the semiotic regimes. Yeah. I mean, if this is to lead us to next time, you know, what he calls integrated world capitalism, what a lot of times we will just call, like we said earlier, the global market or global capitalism, that it has four main semiotic regimes, right? It has these different regimes of signs, um, to use that term in a different vein, that involve, and I talked about a couple of them, but you have yeah. economic uh, semiotics, right? So economic signs, monetary, financial, which we spent a lot of time talking about in the libidinal right. economy, right? Yeah. Juridical semiotics, so title deeds, legislation and regulations of all kinds. I'm also thinking about just, you know, here too, he's thinking about how, you know, the, the hospital or the psychotherapeutic institution itself already comes woven in with different mechanisms of power. Yeah. Right. Right. We can even think about Schreiber and how he had to work so hard to demonstrate his sanity even beyond his delusions to be granted his freedom because mm-hmm. in a certain sense Schreiber was insane but on the but in another sense he had perfect clarity right <laughs> so and confidence. almost like super super sanity is a right as a um concept right. that uh grant morrison comic book writer discusses in terms of like the joker but that's just a kind of Right. So, so for years beyond demonstrating his competence, his memory, his, uh, his sharpness, his, his ability even to negotiate his family's pressing financial concerns while within the asylum, he's obviously showing he's obviously this highly functioning individual. And yet he is plagued by these extremely intense delusions. And so beyond a certain point at which that institution failed to provide him with disabusing him of those delusions. Really, I mean, this gets back to what Guattari says about, you know, in the worst case, but in sometimes the main case, these institutions end up not curing mental illness, but but fomenting it and even creating it. So that's part of the juridical too, and how obviously the <clears throat> that therapy institution is already you know, tied in with juridical power, right? Courts and otherwise. And then there's techno-scientific semiotics, so plans, diagrams, programs, studies, research. Obviously, that's... I mean, that goes back to our discussion of the way that cities are laid out. And I gave the example of the cemetery, but if you think about in terms of, you know, the downtown central business district or whatever you want to call it, right? There's the high rises, et cetera, right? So in the physical landscape, there's a certain topology to existence actually existing in three-dimensional space and how that's organized you know in terms of economic stratification right because it's typically now like the less financially able are pushed to the periphery of the physical layout of the city as opposed to you know many years ago it was like the white flight from the city center now that's that trend has reversed and i think even just instantiating these regimes of power and in terms of you could even take an, an example of washington dc the monuments, right? They have this very Romanesque Baroque inspiration point that has this sort of echoes of this imagined 
past of Roman, like that sort of this imagined connection to an ancient room or et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all of that. And I think that that's, that's a good way to segue into the last one because, you know, you had the techno scientific, so plans, diagrams, uh, blueprints, but also, as he says, studies. And the last one is semiotics of subjectification, which he adds in here, town planning, architecture, public facilities. And what you were already doing, Coop, you were already kind of showing how, no, you were already showing how all of these semiotics, if even if they are heterogeneous, they are communicating and they are resonating and they're always already weaving in and out of one another. So you can't really separate the the juridical, say like, as I said, in psychotherapeutic institutions, you can't separate the juridical from the economic or from the techno-scientific or, you know, and as you mentioned with downtown, with residential planning, where are commercial areas allowed, you know, different types of, I'm thinking of Washington DC and how it's almost unnavigable because of how it's laid out. One could think about a counterexample of that being that Paris and its and its center that radiates out into these different arrondissements, which depending on which one you're on, you have different localizations of extreme poverty and, um, you know, and there's other examples we can find in cities like Detroit and, and whatnot that for all kinds of, you know, intraneous and extraneous reasons, you know, have really... I mean, if if Guattari was American, I think he would, in three ecologies, think about what had happened to Detroit based right. on even you could just look at the the evolution of car production, right, and and, and its history. I mean, even that has an interesting history with, with oh, the city yeah. alone. I, I mean, even that's a great example. That's a super. That's an amazingly crystallized microcosm of three ecologies in one, right? right? Because it's like literally in one section, you know, you have the the fossil fuel industry, the proliferation of automobiles, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's the ecological register. Then you have Outsourcing, the sort of psych, yeah. yeah, the sort of psycho psycho i'm struggling to think of the word here but like the the way that geography impacts the so the social going back to that fourth semiotic regime i think yeah so i mean it's it's you know all of that is all those different sign systems all those different semiotics as he called them the the economic the juridical the techno-scientific and then this subjectification right they they sort of are they, they they're not separable right. just as the mental and the social and the environmental aren't they're separable perhaps provisionally for us right. to focus on one as aspect a model or another right yeah but, as like a but model not in reality correct yeah. yeah there might be a membrane right but there's a there's diffusion it's not like a hard border between right them like yeah there may be a more resistant some areas may be more resistant to diffusion or et cetera, right? But ultimately, there's not, there is some permeability within those domains. But ultimately, there's information and commun- whatever can pass, but desire can flow between all of those. I think there, yeah, that's a good stopping point. We've sort of given a, a good foundation for going deeper into the text. And, you know, I, I'm sure that at some point we uh, we may come back to this, whether it be next week or in the future. And I hope that the listeners have been sort of, you know, inspired and enthused to uh, to take a look at, at Guattari's uh, work themselves. One of which 
you know, one, one, a good introductory text besides this would be um, a little essay called Machine and Structure. I would... Uh, Maybe that's something we should come back to, a, a shorter piece like that. Yeah, that would be good. I think that would, that would, that would kind of crystallize some of the stuff we're doing here and show that he was already thinking about the stuff in the 60s. All right. Well, I, that will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off for the week. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.